Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's almost as cold as Davos, Switzerland. Should we, should we reveal the secret of Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic oh, Forum? Please, I insist. That on, that on one night at the World Economic Forum, Skybridge get together and have a wine-tasting night. Scaramucci shows up, and sometimes Troy Gajewski flies in just to taste some of the wine. I missed he out. Does. I missed out. I went to bed early for a cup of tea. <clears throat> Tom Keane went. How was it, Tom? It was very good. It, it's, a, it's a lovely kickoff to Davos. There's any number of these parties in... It, it, seriously, Troy, it's become a, a Davos tradition. Oh, Troy's it's here. A, Troy's a, with us. It's a gentler party, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It, it, it's just a quieter party, which is nice. Well, quite honestly, I've heard so much hype about it from you and others. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was super excited to go this year. It's first time there, and it was a great yeah, gathering. You know, I mean, you had it was nice and laid back, good music from your good friend, the piano player. Um, good. That would be Mr. Coulson. Mr. Coulson. Barry. Barry Coulson. And, uh, some and the Boone's Farm, the Boone's Farm that you served was just great. And well, the, the MD twenty twenty. Can we, you know, can we, set, can we set the record straight for Mrs. King? Oh, Colin, case, yeah. Colin, just in we, case she's we, we finally found a wine Tom, that our executive Tom, producer. Tom did Colin leave likes. after twenty minutes, didn't he? That, that Tom wasn't true. there. He was out long. early. Yeah, he wasn't there very long at all. And Tom, I got to tell you, I haven't heard a Mad Dog twenty twenty reference in a long time, man. You're bringing it back to the fraternity days. I left. Becky Quick was there with CNBC. We chatted up our children and all that. And it's like a celebration in Davos. But what's so important about this is when they break out the cold duck, I'd already left too early. You left too early. You don't know what cold duck is. I don't know what you're talking oh, about. No. Man, what did I miss? That's cold fair. duck. We missed you, man. When you, we were missed college, you <laughs> when you were in college, this is before uh, 1.75s of vodka. In college, you'd go for the cold duck, which at the, at, this is a few years ago, it'd be 5.95 a bottle. Right. It was a nice, like champagne, but not. This is like wine in a box kind of thing. Oh, no, this is more like old English. Or, yeah. uh, Can you talk to Mr. Gaiaski about alternative I, I, investment? I, I, I want to talk to him about China first, if I may. Please, um, concerns, concerns far and wide. We've had profit warnings from the likes of Apple, Caterpillar more recently. The world's largest economy, seemingly, Troy, the epicenter not just for economic concerns, but now legal and political concerns as well. Yep. And I'm just wondering whether we learn anything this week. Well, look, I mean, from earnings, you should get more indication that there is a slowdown. That's no uh, surprise to anyone that's been following China for quite some time. The question is the degree and what its impact on on revenue and earnings will be. And so far, not so good, right? And, and you know, we, we have focused, rightfully so, we think on Fed policy for the domestic economy. But in terms of revenue streams for, you know, more international focused uh, S&P companies, that will continue to be the biggest drag going forward, we think. Not whether the U.S. grows at two and a half or two this year but whether China can hold it together at 6%. So what's your base case? Well, our base case is China slows to 6% this year, right? I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, from a from a base case standpoint, you're talking China slows to 6, Europe slows to 1 to 1.5%. The U.S. is somewhere in that two to two and a half percent range, which is certainly enough to keep the bull market going. But you know, as we talked about last year, last year we had peak earnings growth. We haven't yet had peak earnings. Yeah. It, but it will be tough for markets to reclaim new highs. We think that's going to happen in Q3, and at some point in Q4, markets start focusing on 2020, where you could get another significant correction. There are some people listening to this program right now, I'm sure, and they're thinking, "So China's slowing down. What's new? Yeah. I, I knew that." 
well before the back end of last year. What am I learning as 2019 progresses? Am I learning that it's worse than you thought it was? It, well, it's certainly worse in Europe and China than most market watchers thought as early or as recently as October of last year. So, so the hard data that's come out has been, you know, somewhere between five and seven percent below what those expectations were. So that's confirming that trend, but at a at a accelerating rate. The the other thing I think uh, people. Um, continue to focus on, including ourselves, is what drag on business fixed investment will that be? So remember, the whole point of tax reform was to drive more business fixed investment, which drove productivity growth and longer term growth. We've already seen business fixed investment come down. That's before you have China and Europe slowing and before you had uh, energy collapse recently. So that will be another key driver of whether we can achieve a higher growth rate in the U.S. this year. So these are big macro themes. How are they shaping your allocation of capital at the moment? Yeah, so we think, you know, God bless the USA. I mean, we love really? Davos. We, lo- we love emerging markets. But at the end of the day, if you think of where fundamentals continue to strengthen, they continue to strengthen from a credit quality standpoint, both in the regional and community banking system and also in the consumer. Uh, the one big change, and it's great to see it because you brought this up several times in interviews last year, is when do you start to fade the floating rate exposure? Yeah. Yeah, so that's very much in our mind. It looks like in hindsight, 3% in the two-year was the time to do it. But hopefully we could get another Fed hike in here and start to fade that at 26 to 2.8. And then, then you're in a situation where you're long, yeah. fundamentally improving credit risk <clears throat> tied to the best economy in the world, in our opinion, from a growth standpoint right now, the most insulated to overseas woes. Yeah. And you could go flip that over from floating to fix. That's a nice setup for the balance of the year. Can you start a hedge fund in February of 2019? Oh, man, it's a brutal business, right? Uh, you know, from our standpoint, the key launches will continue to be where you have established pedigrees coming out of large multi-strategy shops. That does not guarantee success by any stretch of the imagination, but at least it gives you a high probability of getting investors' attention. You saw a few of those last year. You know, our, our focus for newer managers tends to be with with um, you know groups of, or teams that have come out of established shops we've invested in the past that we have have had active dialogue with for five, seven, nine years that are focused on niche strategies such as bank trust CDOs, uh, such as multifamily commercial real estate. Those are the $500 million to $1 billion launches where they, we think they have a fighting chance to run a viable business. Do you guys have a conviction trade for 2019? Yeah, so look, the conviction is U.S. consumer regional community banks. I mean, that's been our, we've been locked and loaded in that for quite some time. Yeah. All we've seen is fundamental improvement. We don't see any reason to uh, go on an adventure yeah. in Europe and hope for a bounce or go on an adventure in emerging markets and hope the dollar right. weakens by 7%. Uh, Troy Gayoski, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Merci beaucoup. Thank you, Troy. Danke schön. Soon. Um, <laughs> With us, Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs. Jeff, let's cut right to the chase. I haven't said this in years. There's been a trend, 1,400-ish, the peak for gold going back five years. This year, we break out. How does gold move higher? Three reasons. One, the fear around recessions has increased tremendously. So while we're not forecasting a direct slowdown in economic activity, the fear of a recession will remain high and likely even increase. Second, hey, we've seen a weakness in the dollar. The CNY, the rupee are getting stronger, and that's typically correlated with more physical demand for um, gold. We'd like to call that the wealth effect. So fear is high, wealth is high, and then finally, the central banks are buying. India stepped in with 70 tons last year. China came in in December 
September, the first time since 2016. In total, you have 100 tons of buying out of Central Bank. Mm -hmm. Those three factors, we think, will push you up to 1450. 1450 over what time horizon, Jeff? Um, a 12 month target, but just it, the Central Bank buying alone just gets you to 1425. Really? Right. So I, you know, I think you know the momentum right now, particularly given the recent move. Um, you know, we may be there a lot sooner than we expect. What do you make of the inflation story? Uh, several years ago, it was buy gold, buy gold, inflation's coming, then inflation didn't come. Does that play into any of this? What are your thoughts on I, that? Actually, the one thing I learned um, during the financial crisis is that gold price is independent of the price level. Why? Is I had clients calling me up in 09 going, gold is up today because of inflationary concerns. Gold is up today because yeah. of deflationary concerns. It cannot be both at the same time. What gold prices is debasement. And the concerns around a recession and other types of dynamics or a you know weakening of the dollar are all debasement. That's what supports the So what does that mean price. for the rest of the commodity costs? complex, the argument you're making right now around gold. What does it mean for crude? Well, we, we look at the overall demand environment. We like to say it's relatively benign. Um, the numbers that came out of China, despite the fact that you had the concerns around a slowdown in China, um, showed that demand was up 6%. So if you have a relatively modest demand outlook, yeah. which we think it is, combine that with the OPEC production cuts that appear to be more shock and awe right now, um, we've got upside in crude. You were in Hong Kong two cups of coffee ago. What did you observe there about 6.x percent China GDP? Um, you're likely to hit it, but it's going to be through selective easing as opposed to blanket easing. But I, the biggest thing I picked up in, in Asia was that there is structural concerns that are not going to go away with um, an inked trade deal. And I think that's going to um, basically weigh on these markets, particularly the metals markets. And the fact that you have selective easing city by city makes it more difficult to see. So what it means, you're going to have to see the physical markets perform. So I remember when you would put commodities into two buckets for China, Jeff, and I wonder whether you would continue to do that. You put a bucket of commodities for operational reasons, continued success within the modern China that we think of now. And then you had a bucket of commodities for the old economy, the big investment boom we saw, say, a decade ago. Is that the way you're still thinking about this? Absolutely. I mean, the ones that are under pressure right now, and you can see it in the demand, are the CapEx commodities, like base metals in the bulks. Um, the, you know, you go back to that oil demand number, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, all those demand numbers were stellar in the most recent So reports. these are the OPEX They're the OPEX commodities. Yeah. They still look rock solid, which is why we, we would favor out of the cyclical commodities, yeah. oil. Well, oil. Is Vienna going to be a big deal this year? I mean, I mean, I can't figure out if OPEC's a yawner and nobody cares, or can there actually be some genuine tension there? Uh, they're already cutting substantially. And I think the, the point and the lesson learned from the cuts in 16 and 17 is um, don't waste time. The longer you wait, the bigger the market share that the shale mm -hmm. producers can take. Um, the numbers that came out yesterday, they're cutting more than 250,000 barrels per day. Yeah. Below their, so I would tend to think it's shock and awe right now. By the time we get to Vienna, it'll be a different world. So, Jeff, this is a question I've got to ask because at the back end of last year, they were boosting production too much and they found themselves with a supply glut. Are they cutting too much now? The Venezuela issue on the horizon for a lot of people after the Trump administration issued French sanctions on PDVSA. This effectively blocks any kind of crude exports coming out of Venezuela into I, the United I, I, States. I, the Venezuelan supply will be disrupted for maybe a month as yeah. you redirect supplies. Um, but I think you built 140 million barrels of oil at the end of last year. They got to take that out of the market. So the deeper and faster they cut, the faster that inventory overhang is resolved, then they can bring the production back online. Well, they can bring the production back online, but let me ask a question I think I asked three weeks ago. Is it still a cartel? 
was it ever a cartel? Okay. Um, but, but I think well, he, 1986 the, the, was a cartel and they but, learned but, a lesson. But, but the question about being able to, to run a cartel is you need to have a steep residual supply curve. And what shale has done is flattened out that supply yeah. curve, which makes it really difficult, if not impossible, to run a cartel outside of very short horizons. Um, I mean, what you're saying to translate this is a response. Does he sound like a Chicago microeconomics professor? I think he does. The elasticities and reaction of. function, of, they've completely changed. The response yeah. functions of global oil totally changed. Absolutely. In fact, we call that the new oil order. And it's the fact that, hey, if I'm OPEC over a six to 12 month horizon, cut back production, prices go too high, I will lose a lot of market share. And we saw it. Yeah. But what's interesting when you think about OPEC's reaction function, the supply that scares them is not shale. It is the international oil, those big deep water offshore projects. Because yeah. once you bring one of those online, they don't disappear in two or three years like shale. They're online for the next two decades. Jeff Curry, thank you so much with Goldman Sachs, leading off there with a long on gold. Will Power with Baird on Apple. Will, let's start with where you are on Apple uh, buy, hold, sell. Where's Will Power? Yeah, no good question. We're recommending the stock we have for some time. We've kind of taken the long view on it, and I think really the view that you've got to be willing to you know ride some of the ups and downs with the yeah. idea that you know longer term they still benefit from from the broader ecosystem. The stock is up fifty six percent from the summer of two thousand sixteen. You and I and everyone else have enjoyed a thirty nine percent drawdown. Now thirty three percent off. Is this a stock in a bear market? Or is it the mother of all willpower opportunities? Well, we, we like the, the opportunity longer term. I mean, I, I will say, talking about caveat with the, with the notion that, you know, I think there's still some risk to the full-year estimates. We had a preview out uh, last uh, week uh, which suggested we think street estimates are a bit too high for the March quarter in the, in the full year. Now, some of that's likely in the stock. So I, I guess, you know, we would like to get estimates fully reset. But, you know, if you take a longer-term view, irrespective of that, we like it off these uh, levels longer term. Well, do you think there's a, a real chance in the short term that they could be cutting estimates again at the company? Well, I think the focus on the call tonight is going to be the March quarter. And, of course, they hadn't addressed the March quarter or, or beyond the December quarter. And I yeah. think our near-term judgment is estimates haven't fallen quite far enough. Now, again, we'll obviously get more color on that here uh, in a few hours from now or, I guess, after the close. Uh, you know, that, that may be splitting hairs a bit, given the weakness we've already seen. But I guess the real answer is yes. I, I think uh, the estimates could still come down from where they are right now. Well, it's not clear to me how the company's actually responding to this. I've heard a lot of excuses as to why we had this dreadful performance in China at the back end of last year, but little indication of how they'll respond to it. I caught up with Dan Ives, a peer of yours that follows Apple as well. And Dan reckons they've got to cut prices and they've got to do it this year. What's your view on that, Will? Yeah, you know, that, that clearly hasn't been in the playbook, uh, you know, for Apple, you know, historically. And I guess I'm less convinced they'll cut prices. Uh, you know, the other way to look at that is perhaps they won't raise prices by as much when they roll out, you know, the next model. Uh, you know, the, I, my guess is they'll have to be a little less aggressive on that front. But they're, they're also still catering to the high end. You know, they're not trying to attract, you know, every consumer out there. But, yeah, yes, to your point, that is, you know, impeding, you know, sales given – price sensitivity and, and global macro pressures out there. Well, do you buy the story that the upgrade cycle is lengthening somehow? 
Well, we've seen it. I, you know, I've done a lot of work on the carriers, covered many of them for many years as well, whether it's the AT&T, Verizon's, uh, you know, et cetera. And, and, and little question, as you look at their results, customers are holding on to their phones longer. You know, that's benefited them in some respects with regard to, you know, lower subsidy um, okay. fees. And- I mean, let's go all logarithmic on you. You have a fundamental view of free cash flow that has a certain vector, a certain trajectory upwards. There's been, there's been and is and now an adjustment in that vector down. When Apple moves on from the present challenges, does it reassert that upward slope or is it a new slope? Well, I think I think it can return to at least a you know a similar slope. You know, does it get to the same slope it was on? I, I guess we'll see. I mean, that that'll hinge in part on new products, new services, opportunities. I mean, a big part of our bet is still that they can capitalize on these 1.4 billion active devices, you know, globally. And again, this growing services stream and opportunities there. The candidly, I think they've been you know slow to capitalize on. I think they're continue to be you know, a myriad of, of opportunities they can take advantage of there with what's a big captive customer base. And look, when I step back on this company, I covered BlackBerry and Nokia, and I know those have been thrown in as potential reference points. This is a company that, in terms of competition, I think really still dominates the high end. There's not a provider you look at and say, oh, my God. Well, that was my next question. Who's, who is Apple's competition? Right. Well, My answer end, is there isn't any. Yeah, it's themselves in, in the market. I mean, look, I mean, Samsung has you know good products at the high end, but that's not new. And of course, they are getting you know picked away at at the you know lower end from a lot of the Chinese providers, uh, you know, and others. But by yeah. and large, there's not a new technology you look at and say, "Wow, this is really going to wipe these guys out." I mean, I think Apple still has a strong position. And I think, you know, there's still an annuity element, even if the upgrade cycle is lengthened. One more question on China, Will. Why is this company struggling with near-term visibility in a really important market for them? Well, I, it, you know, it, 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 and we saw some announcements from companies yesterday, too, that claimed they were impacted by, you know, slowing economic act- activity in China. And I think that's likely what it comes down to. Uh, you know, how much trade's factored into that, you know, tough to know. But, you know, it appears the Chinese consumers, you know, spending a, spending a bit less. Uh, and, and in the case of Apple, focused a bit more on, you know, some of the local brands. And that comes back to some of the, you know, the price sensitivity. I think, yeah. you know, we're still in the view of the longer term. That's still a nice market for them. What's an appropriate multiple for them? I mean, 12 months forward, uh, maybe it's 12 times or 13 times P.E. multiple. That's extraordinarily low. Do you have a normalized rate for Apple, the should, of where their price earnings ratio should be? Well, this, of course, has always been one of the big battlegrounds uh, you know, yeah. on the stock, as you know. I think, look, I mean, I, I think there's rationale to, you know, suggest it could trade at a premium to the market. But even just getting in line with the market, you know, would suggest upside from here. By and large, yeah. the market is suggested it's a trade at a discount, right? It's yeah. in that consumer electronics bucket and never been willing to go much beyond right. a market multiple. In the bear, I think as you look at the, yeah. No, go ahead, please. Please, I'm sorry. Well, I think as you look at the combination of the cash flow, the brand, what are still some growth opportunities over time, you know, I think you can justify you know, a market multiple. I want to get to the story of the morning, that I can call Tom Keen on FaceTime, then before you answer, I can conference call myself in, and apparently... I can listen to your audio, even though you, can hear me talking to you haven't answered the phone. 
It is a bug in Apple. What's the latest on that, Will? It broke in the last 24 hours overnight. It's too complicated. Can, can I me. listen right. to Tom Keane talk to his dog? Yeah, well, is that something you want to do? I don't know if it's something I want to do. I'm just work, trying to work out whether it's something I can do. Yeah, well, it, it, it appears, based on the reports that I've also seen, that you know, there there was a bug in the software that enabled you to effectively eavesdrop on a comp, on a conversation That's prior amazing. to being picked up. My understanding is they may have already shut off that capability and are also working on a software update. They expect that in a few days. So it, it does yeah. appear they had it initial issue there in the Baird world will power one final question in the Baird world I, I I mean it's going to be seven below zero or whatever up north you're down in Texas maybe this morning I mean how cold is cold out in the Baird world the next <laughs> well it's a little better in Dallas than it is up in uh, Milwaukee you got that right look if you're up in Milwaukee and Minneapolis things are you know at least the Baird I know are still functioning you got to have that in your DNA right I mean, yeah Grab some brats and beer, and you you know you there you uh, go. You know, lay away for a couple of days. There's an app on your Apple you can use to figure out where to get the brats and beer. Will Power, thank you so much for the Baird update from the Midwest. He is in Texas uh, this morning. Julia Coronado uh, with us right now with Macro Policy. Julia, good morning. Good morning. What do they do at labor to catch up? I mean, the data comes in, they have to massage it. Is it routine or is there a lot of hoops to jump through? Oh, my goodness. Well, so first of all, Department of Labor actually continued operating through the shutdown. And so the employment data is going to be released as usual on Friday, but it's the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the Census Bureau, which are responsible for pretty much everything else we care about. Uh, and they have, imagine losing a month of the year's work and trying to make that up. It's going to be, you know, some of the data collection was continuing because it was classified as um, essential. But processing that data, organizing the data, going and, and meanwhile trying not to fall behind on next month's data. So it's going to be quite a struggle for the uh, federal employees. And yeah. They don't get paid overtime. So. so, Julia, where are your blind spots, so to speak, in the U.S. economy Good at the question. moment? Where don't you have information that you want information? Well, pretty much all the sectoral information we're missing, I would say right now in the current environment, when we're looking for signs of whether the global slowdown is washing ashore, things like durable goods orders are particularly important, investment data, um, things like housing investment, uh, retail sales, how well is the consumer holding up, all of the sort of granular sector level information is pretty critical for getting a a good assessment of yeah. how the economy is holding up. Let's move to the Fed. What is the important? Let's just we've had so many distractions. Julie, do you want to weigh in on Brexit? I do not want to. Oh, weigh okay, in good, on good. Brexit. That's that's why she's on. Insights. Everybody, <laughs> hey, hey, Julia, it's, we are on the same page. It, it, it's Don't ca- worry. Chaos. It's chaos. Funny. Seriously, folks. Prime Minister May may speak, and we'll do something with that if we get to it. Julia, this Fed meeting. I know it's changed in the last six weeks. How has this Fed meeting changed in the last three days? So I think one of the interesting nuances for Fed geeks like myself and many others is what they're going to say on the balance sheet. So whether they're going to start socializing that. um, As with interest rates, they may be getting a bit more cautious. 
And really, actually, for some technical reasons uh, that reflect market plumbing, they may contemplate a higher balance sheet and an earlier end to the balance sheet reduction. So I think for for people watching the nuances very closely, that's going to be the interesting uh, part of the press conference. We know they're on hold for a while, uh, yeah. and particularly given the lack of government data, you know, that's going to be beyond March. So that that's not in question. So, Julia, let's talk about this balance sheet runoff story. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal last week that got a lot of attention that basically said yeah. exactly what you're saying. I want to understand the rationale. I know that market participants and many of market participants, not everyone, but a lot, are unhappy with a balance sheet runoff. If the Federal Reserve says, okay, we'll slow it down and we'll end up with a bigger balance sheet than we thought we would end up with, what's their rationale for doing that? Well, one of the sort of technical rationales is that um, reserves in the system, which has become a pretty crucial part of just market liquidity, just funding the financial system, um, they have been declining much faster than the securities portfolio, reflecting a variety of of technical factors. So the Fed is trying to figure out what is the equilibrium level of reserves that the banking system needs. They don't know that. um, But the fact that we are reducing reserves very rapidly means that wherever that is, we're going to get there sooner. And market tightening, and I'm not talking about the Q4 volatility, volatility, just front end market spreads, financing, funding costs at the front end, did show some signs of tightness and volatility. And I think most people in the market and even a lot of Fed people believe that that equilibrium level of reserves might be higher than we than we originally thought. And we've never been here before. This is a new system. Yeah. We just don't know. They may want to kind of feel their way towards that equilibrium. Final question. We have a news conference tomorrow as well. We have a live meeting apparently. Every single meeting, no Brexit, please. We'll probably have a news conference on that tomorrow too. Julia, uh, if you so had a question, if you had a question for the chairman, what would it be? Well, again, my my uh, open question is on the balance sheet. So, what is their um, assessment of the equilibrium level of reserves? Do they think it's wise to maybe taper their treasury roll off uh, in coming months? in order to sort of slow down this process and figure out where that equilibrium is? That would be my question. We'll try and get Michael McKee to ask it for you. Please do. I would appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right now with us, James Trevitas, of course, former NATO commander for years with the Fletcher School, now with the Carlisle Group. Admiral Stravitas, I I want to dovetail in here the policy of trade negotiations, the very real Huawei uh, events, which got very serious yesterday with a substantial set of indictments by the Justice Department of the United States of America, with your perception of how China will react to this Western event. What will that be, Admiral Stavitas? How will China react? Uh, they will react very badly. And of course, we, we know that. They've shown us the tell, which is the uh, arrest of a group of Canadian uh, diplomats and citizens, Tom. And I think what we're seeing more broadly is a, a real shift from what we traditionally think of as geopolitics, which tends to have a military mm-hmm. overlay, to geoeconomics and the use of 
economic tools more aggressively going both ways. So I would say on Huawei, buckle up. Uh, one more question as we await the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. All of this Brexit debate, Admiral Stavitas, will it diminish the British Navy? Will it diminish the British fighting force, which is, of course, legendary back centuries? Unfortunately, it will. And this is Brexit itself is bad news, not only for Britain, in my view, and for the United States, but for NATO, because it it, it undermines, Tom, this uh, unified European voice. One of my predecessors, <clears throat> the Supreme Allied Commander, General Eisenhower, said that the greatest strategic advantage of the United States is a unified Europe, and we're watching it being pulled apart. That will affect uh, the Navy as well as the other branches of the British Armed Forces in all of the distraction that follows here. And particularly, Tom, if someone like Jeremy Corbyn comes into power, look for massive cuts. He would make Bernie Sanders look like uh, Santa Claus in terms of what he would be doing for the British military. And and some of this, uh, James Trevitas, is... The, the assumption of why NATO exists now. A lot of people are saying, you know, it's not 1960, it's not 1940, it's not even 2000. Is, is, the, is the NATO structure solely because of the perceived threat of Mr. Putin and of Russia? Not at all. And, and if you go back to the original premise of NATO, it was <clears throat> to keep the Russians out keep the Germans down and keep the Americans in was the the catchphrase for it. That still exists. The power of NATO is probably not that no outside nation has attacked a NATO nation. Mm -hmm. It's that after 2,000 years of European wars, no NATO member has attacked another NATO member. So there's a unifying function that we ought to be historically mindful enough to appreciate. And oh, by the way, Russia hasn't gone away as a threat. They still exist. James Covies, thank you so much for the Carlisle Group this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.